Revelation 18 and Psalm 137. And we're going to look at several extended passages in the Hebrew Scriptures that portend Revelation 18 are connected to Revelation 18, the fall of commercial Babylon. We're going to look at all that tonight. So if you don't have a Bible, get one off the back shelf and uh, turn with us. Fathers, we begin, I pray. I come asking for your spirit to be our rabbi tonight. Lord Jesus, that you would teach us. That we could just gather around like the apostles on a hillside of the Galilee and listen to our Lord and learn from you. These words are your words. We've come to understand and believe that. We know that heaven and earth will pass away, but your words will never pass away. And so as you spoke them then, you speak them now. And we, we're here to receive like your disciples, like your apostles. And, and we ask that tonight you'll give us ears to hear and open our minds and our hearts to understand these things, comprehend, but especially to embrace the... Well, Lord, some of the truths here, it, it still comes back to the, the ultimate truth. You, Lord Jesus, are the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through you. So bring us to the Father tonight, Lord. And we pray that you will teach us your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? You ever feel like that? You ever feel like, how can I sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Or even when I am singing, I'm singing in a foreign land, and sometimes it's hard to find the right notes. Sometimes you look around at what's taking place in our world, and you say, I don't feel like singing. Sometimes the heart is heavy from the weight of the world around us, from the religious and political and economic systems, the things that we have to deal with. It is tough to sing by the rivers of Babylon. How can I sing in a foreign land? But as we come to Revelation 18, and you can head that way right now, closer and closer to the full revelation of Jesus Christ and His return, both in chapter 19 and in real life, as He is coming imminently, as He will return soon. But as we get closer to the revelation of Jesus, even in our study, the song of the Lord is growing stronger in my heart. I'm feeling more and more like singing. You see, it's the song of salvation. In verse 4 of Revelation 18, he writes, Come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people. And I think of Moses and the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Egypt being a picture of the world. Babylon clearly a picture of the world and its system, both religious and commercial. And the Lord saying, come out of Babylon. And the Lord said to His children, come out of Egypt. As the Lord says to you and to me, and we'll talk about more in a bit, come out of this world. Come out, my children. And so Moses and the children of Israel, they came out of Egypt. They began their march. 
They were on their way to Sinai until they came up against the Red Sea. But as they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, as they were rescued from the armies of Egypt, as they came to the other side and the sea enfolded and went back into its bed, wiping out the armies of Egypt, and they clearly were saved, they began to sing a song. They sang Exodus 15 verse 2, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise Him. My Father's God and I will extol Him. The song of salvation. And yet we sing the song of salvation on this side of the Red Sea. Not having yet crossed. We, we come to the sea, we sometimes face the sea itself, and it's huge, and the army's behind us, and, and tight spots like that. But we sing the song of salvation on this side, before our final rescue. The song of salvation, come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people. Hey, the world of Babylon will fall. And if you get nothing else tonight, understand that. This world and its system will fall. It will fail like it's never failed before. Nations have fallen. Nations have failed. This entire world is facing an absolute falling. And that's certain. But you know what else is certain? The kingdom of Christ is coming. So I sing in a foreign land. Christ Himself, before His kingdom comes, He's going to come and call His people out. So we sing a song of salvation, and we sing a song. There was a song written years ago by a, a Christian kind of Christian rock band, Christian metal band called Whiteheart. The song is called Bye Bye Babylon. Great song, real heavy, you know. Bye Bye Babylon! <laughs> Bye-bye, Babylon. Because as God's people, we're coming out of Babylon. Verse 1 of chapter 18, after these things. So after these things, we're moving forward again. Metatauta. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. Who is this? Well, if the earth is illumined with his glory, could it be the Lord? No. I, I assume this angel has been with the Lord because he's got glory all over him and he's illuminating the earth with it. But this is another angel. It's that word we've used several times in Revelation, Alon or Alos. Alon Angelon. So another of the same kind. So he's just been talking to, he's just been led by and taught by one of the seven angels that had the seven bowls. Well, now another angel of the same kind. So of the same type comes along, and now he, he's going to be showing John some things in this letter. This angel comes out. And by the way, if, if this angel is not Jesus, and I don't believe he is, and he's coming out here, the whole earth is lit up with his glory. Think about this. How much more will the whole earth be lit up with the glory of Jesus himself when he comes? How much more the glory of Christ. And as you think about that, consider this. That glory of Jesus resides in you. Resides in me. This is one of those thoughts that's just like mind-blowing. 
We as followers of Jesus need to consider this more often. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He lights us up. And then Paul says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. This treasure in these earthen vessels is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That glory, we see it illuminate the entire earth here as this angel comes forward to speak with John. But it's the glory of God that illuminates us. And so when the Bible sings, the Lord is my strength, Exodus 15, 2. Moses and the children say, the Lord is my strength. Please understand, it's not just emotionally inspirational. God is my strength and my song. It is spiritually substantive. And those two words may not often go together. Spiritually substantive, because most people think of spiritually as ghostly and ethereal and not real. Well, we've talked about many times here before that spiritually is more real than physically. Spiritually is eternally. Spiritually is huge. To have spiritual substance, this is the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. And this is what has been given to you in Jesus Christ as a follower of Jesus. How do you sing a song of the Lord in a foreign land? you got the Spirit in you. You have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that knowledge and that glory, man, that lights me up. That certainty of Christ in me lifts my head and allows me to sing here and now in a foreign land while I look beyond Babylon. Well, I don't stress about Babylon and all the things happening. We'll talk about a few things politically, economically going on in our country right now. Things that if you didn't have Jesus, it would really bum you out. I'm going to try really hard to bum you out in a few minutes. But if you have the knowledge of the light, of the glory of God in the face of Christ... Okay, there are certain realities in our culture, in our world that we know are going on, but hey, that's all right. can all fall apart tomorrow. I know Jesus Christ. I know Jesus is coming for me, and I am filled with His Spirit, which lights me up so I can look beyond Babylon. Well, out comes this angel, and in verse 2, he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now he's not stuttering. He's speaking twice here, fallen, fallen. Either he's speaking of Babylon's past falling and their future falling. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Or more likely he's indicating both aspects of Babylon. Religious chapter 17 and commercial chapter 18. Fallen, fallen. The religious system connected to, tied to, going all the way back to Babylonian paganism is fallen. And the commercial system, all that's left, the structure and framework of commerce and and merchandising and, and materialism and greed, man, that's fallen too. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Ecumenical Babylon. And political Babylon. Fallen, fallen, he says. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. This place has become foul. (laughs) 
Sorry, I knew that would lead to a flap of some kind. All right, so (laughs) this has become a prison. Now note this, Babylon, this has become a prison. I want you to understand that both, both literally, geographically, it's become a prison. This place is supposed to be the rule of the, of the earth, the global answer. The United Nations all together as one have become for themselves a prison. And will be at this time. People will be constrained and incarcerated and detained from real life. But this is also a self-inflicted incarceration. This is what happens when you choose to live in Babylon. False beliefs in a world system entrap and confine people. People get stuck. Even in lostness. You know, we've talked about this. Don't look at people who are lost. Friends, family members who don't know Jesus. Don't look at them as rebels. Look at them as confined. As imprisoned. As captives of the enemy who may not even know they're captives. Because everything around them is illusion. And yet they're in prison. What did Jesus say? Isaiah 61 verse 1. He has sent me to bind up or to bandage the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. We know where the Spirit of the Lord is. There is liberty. You have been set free. It is for freedom that you have been set free in Christ Jesus. That's the whole point. Jesus comes to free us, not to confine us. And by the way, He did just that even when He was here the first time. Matthew 11, verse 5, He said, Hey, go tell John the Baptist, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. Every single one of those are freedom from confinement. The deaf are confined to no hearing. The lame confined to never being able to walk. The blind are confined in their darkness. All of these, the dead are raised up. Talk about confinement. And yet Jesus has already been setting people free and He finishes His statement saying, and the poor have the Gospel preached to them. Man, freedom. Liberty. But this world in which we live, has become a cage of the fallen. It is a prison of sorts. It is a detention center of the defiant. And what Babylon itself geographically will become, and what the world is even now, it's a wasteland. Becoming more wasted as we go. But here Babylon becomes a a place, a, a prison of demons, Unclean spirits, hateful birds. I'll address that in a second. Can't let that one go. But what's he talking about? A desert wasteland. This is a description, literally, of demons, unclean spirits, and hateful or foul birds. And it's a desert wasteland. A waste place, a ruined place where these things dwell. Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 43, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Demons go to waste places. Demons like the the ruined. And they tend to head there. Which is why, by the way, demons love a ruined life. We'll head to a ruined spirit. We'll, we'll try to inhabit a broken person. They like waste places. So demons and unclean spirits and hateful birds. <laughs> How can a bird be hateful? Well, 
you should see the vicious little hummingbirds outside our kitchen window. These things are absolutely vile. They get all hopped up on sugar water, and then they start skewering each other with their little beaks. Hateful birds. I've told you before, when we were in the barn, they would poop on my notes. Hateful birds. How can a bird be hateful? Listen, all due respect to bird lovers everywhere and the National Audubon Society, but like it or not... Love birds or not, and I actually think they're kind of cute, and we have our little, you know, sugar water out there to attract them, because we like watching them kill each other. (laughs) But regardless of how you feel about birds, and if you're a bird lover, that's wonderful. God created birds. They're beautiful. They're marvelous creatures. But in the Bible, birds often indicate evil. Well, that's not fair. Look, it's just as a picture. How can birds indicate evil? The same as tares. Intruding upon wheat. Tares are just tares. They're weeds. Now you may say, I hate weeds, so that's a better picture of evil. Weeds in my garden, gotta pull them out. Yeah, but they're just weeds. Or leaven spreading throughout the dough. It's just leaven. Leaven is not inherently evil, but when it gets into dough, it causes it to rise and it spreads out throughout. So Jesus used all three of these, tares among the wheat, leaven in the dough, and birds in the branches as a triune picture of evil getting in. It's not that birds are bad, but birds in the branches, Matthew 13, 31, he said the kingdom of heaven, it's like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. Can you imagine this? Jesus comes along and sows a seed, the seed of the kingdom. He sowed it in his first coming. In the field of the world. And this is smaller than all the seeds. I mean, such an insignificant thing, seemingly. A Galilean, carpenter turned rabbi, living in an obscure place, in an obscure land, at an obscure time. When Rome was all the rage, he was just a, just a guy in the Galilee. Begins to plant the seed. His blood becoming the seed of our very salvation. And then he says, but when it's full grown, this smaller than all the seeds, it's larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree. Which, by the way, indicates, I believe, unnatural growth because a mustard seed never grows that big. Mustard plants are wispy and and thin and they don't grow into big, massive trees. But he's giving an example. This is what happens when people get hold of the mustard seed, when people get hold of... Faith, they turn it into religion and it starts to get big and cumbersome and huge. Grows these branches in all directions. We might even call them denominations. And they spread out different faiths and different belief systems and it gets huge. And then he says it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and they nest in its branches. So you don't even know who's in the tree. Leaven, tares, and birds, all three picturing evil. So when we see that there are hateful birds here, he's just painting a picture. And you can think about a waste place and a couple of vultures hanging out on a branch looking for the next thing that's going to die. It's just a wasteland. And Babylon, get this, Babylon must become an absolute waste. It must for prophecy to be fulfilled. Turn back to the book of Isaiah. Chapter 13. Isaiah falls somewhat near the middle of Scripture. If you open your Bible to the middle and then head left just a few 
chapters or so, you should be in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 13. In verse 19, that's where I'll pick up reading there. Which speaks prophecies about Babylon. It's multiple prophecies about Babylon. Some are immediately fulfilled as the Medes and the Persians would crush Babylon in 539 B.C. Some, some have never been fulfilled. Note this. Isaiah 13, verse 19. In Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation. Nor will the Arab pitch his tent there. Nor will shepherds make their flocks lie down there. But desert creatures will lie down there. And their houses will be full of owls. Foul birds. Hateful birds. Ostriches will also live there. And shaggy goats will frolic there. Hyenas will howl in their fortified towers and jackals in their luxurious palaces. Her fateful time also will soon come and her days will not be prolonged. Here's the problem. Her fateful time did not come. Not as described here. Babylon was never destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. Does anybody know where Sodom and Gomorrah is today? What? (laughs) I think Deb's probably the closest. Bottom of the Dead Sea. That's actually what we think. That Sodom and Gomorrah ended up wiped out and are actually whatever remnant, if any, they got fried and they would be at the bottom of the Dead Sea. Zoar, a place in Israel. No one really knows. I've seen a couple of locations there where they say, we think this could be. They're like, well, there's nothing here. Exactly. And that was Sodom and Gomorrah, completely wiped out, non-existent, nothing left. And that's not Babylon. See, Babylon, it was never fully destroyed. It was conquered, but then taken over. When the Medes and the Persians came in, many of the Babylonians were glad. They hated Belshazzar. They didn't like the rule or the leadership they were under. They were ready for something new. And they came right in and took over the city and set up shop. Well, Darius II, he kind of let it fall into a little bit of disrepair. The the city, it wasn't quite to the glory that it had been under Nebuchadnezzar. Alexander the Great comes along. And he restores a lot of the glory of Babylon. He set up shop there. That's where Alexander the Great ended up dying. The age of 33. And so, Babylon rose in prominence again, but then just started to died down and it fell into ruin and it was ultimately completely abandoned by the end of the first century A.D. In fact, Roman emperor Trajan, who ruled from 98 to 117, he called it, quote, nothing but mounds and stones and ruins. So by the time John's writing this revelation, Babylon, of which he's writing, which, which he says in chapter 18 is going to be destroyed, was a ruinous place. But it had never been conquered and destroyed. It still had its mounds and it still had its stones and it still had its ruins. Well, go to the right to the book of Jeremiah. Chapter 51. Jeremiah 51. Now, Jeremiah was the prophet at the time of Jerusalem's fall. 586 B.C. He watched the city burn. He saw the temple go down at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. 
He saw his people carried off into Babylonian captivity, and the book of Jeremiah is written with that horrific backdrop. But now in Jeremiah 51, note this language. Look at verse uh, 24. 51-24. I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea for all their evil that they have done in Zion before your eyes, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, who destroys the whole earth, declares the Lord. Well, Babylon had not destroyed the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags, and I will make you a burnt out mountain. Note this, they will not take from you even a stone for a corner, nor a stone for foundations, but you will be desolate forever, declares the Lord. Not a single stone. You know, Jesus had said not one stone will be left upon another. Speaking of the fall of the temple, and not one stone was, but those stones are still there. Many of those stones still piled up in Jerusalem. In this case, he says, not a single stone of Babylon will ever again be used anywhere else. And that's problematic. I'll tell you why in just a second. Look down at verse 42. The sea has come up over Babylon. Literally, sea there can also be translated the broad river. So the Euphrates has come up over Babylon. She has been engulfed with its tumultuous waves. Never happened. Her cities have become an object of horror, a parched land and a desert, a land in which no man lives and through which no son of man passes. I will punish Bel in Babylon, which is Babylonian Chaldean name for Baal. I will make what he has swallowed come out of his mouth and the nations will no longer stream to him. Even the wall of Babylon has fallen down. In Iraq today, and you all know the ruins of Babylon have been discovered and are in Iraq. There is a sprawling suburban city. In fact, the largest city in what is called the Babyl province. It's amazing. You go over to the Middle East and they keep the old names. They still have a province there called Babel. And in the Babel province, B-A-B-I-L is how they spell it, there's a city there called Al-Hila. Al-Hila. Al-Hila means in the Arabic, rest. City of rest. It sits on what's called the Hilla branch of the Euphrates River. Across all of the centuries, the Euphrates has changed direction a little bit, has branched out, if you will. And so there's a branch of it coming off, the Hilla branch, and there sits Al-Hila right at the ruins of Babylon. Here's the thing. Many of the ancient stones from the ruins of Babylon have been and had been taken by locals and used to build homes in Hillel. Those stones that God said, back in verse 26, not a stone for foundations, not a stone for a corner, you'll be desolate forever. They're not even going to use your stones, but they are. They have. And if you Google this when you get home, all Hillel, look it up. It is a sprawling suburban city. It's huge. Beautiful, really. Right there at the Euphrates River, and it sits there. Population, 455,000 live in Al-Hila. But, but God said Babylon is going to be a complete waste. 
He said after her final destruction, none of these things that are right now, none of these things could happen. So we can't say that the previous ruin of Babylon, the the falling of Babylon, we can't say that it was completed in history. We can't say this prophecy was fulfilled or that of Isaiah. These are prophecies that must yet be fulfilled. If God's word be true. And it is. These are prophecies to come. And so as we go back now to Revelation 18, check this out and think it through. Verse 2 again, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit, a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations, all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Sound familiar? We read almost the same thing in chapter 17. And the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. And we read about that in chapter 17. And again, that word immorality, pornea. But then he says, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. Different word. The first two, nations and kings, we already knew climbed in bed with the harlot. With Babylon the whore of chapter 17. Now, merchants are added into the mix. These are those who have become the uber rich by the wealth of their sensuality. Not sexual immorality, but sensuality. What's the difference? The word sensuality in the Greek means lustful and luxurious. So there's still an element of the sexual involved in sensuality, but it's, it's really bigger than sexual immorality. It is flesh immorality. So it's, it's beyond the sexual. It's every kind of lush extravagance for the flesh. So it would involve anything else that feels good, that goes down smooth, that alters the mind. Anything that that would be of a luxurious sort, an extravagance, we read about a lot of that on Sunday. Extravagances. And so now the merchants are involved. That's where we're seeing the difference between religious Babylon fallen and now commercial Babylon because the merchants are involved. Now we're looking at the money side of things. And just know that while we're talking about two Expressions, if you will, of Babylon, chapter 17 and 18, religious and commercial, they share the same roots and the same fruits. It's still Babylon. Any way you slice it, religious, commercial, idolatrous, profitable, sexual, sensual, it's all Babylon. Verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. Another voice. And you might say, well, that's got to be the voice of the Lord. And it's possible it may be the voice of the Lord. But another is, again, Alon. So it's another of the same kind. And in the next verse, we'll see that it speaks of God in the third person. For God has done this. So it's possible that this is an angel now speaking on the authority of God. Speaking on behalf of the Lord. And calling out, calling out, come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. Now note this, verse 4 all the way down through verse 20 now are a prophetic description. And this is interesting in the Revelation because John has seen a lot of things. He doesn't see what happens in chapter 18. He hears about it. He's told 
what's coming. He doesn't see it happen. And that, again, is unique in the Revelation. He's not witnessing the event, but he's being told what's coming. And it's described to him. And so in this description, verse 4 through 20, the angel's telling John, painting the picture for John of what's going to happen, and at the beginning of it, calling out those who reside in Babylon. Go back to Jeremiah 51 again. Jeremiah 51. Because this calling out, this recalls more prophecy from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 45. Come forth from her midst, my people, and each of you save yourselves from the fierce anger of the Lord. Now, so that your heart does not grow faint, and you are not afraid at the report that will be heard in the land, for the report will come one year, and after that, another report in another year, and violence will be in the land with ruler against ruler. And some of that has been fulfilled. Some of that happened in ancient Babylon. Therefore, verse verse 47, days are coming when I will punish the idols of Babylon and her whole land will be put to shame and all her slain will fall in her midst. And then, note this, then heaven and earth and all that is in them will shout for joy over Babylon for the destroyers will come to her from the north, declares the Lord. Indeed, Babylon is to fall for the slain of Israel. Also for Babylon, the slain of all the earth have fallen. You who have escaped the sword, depart, do not stay. Remember the Lord from afar and let Jerusalem come to your mind. Come out of her, he says. Come out of her, my people. Back in Revelation 18. Who's being called out? At this time that John is being instructed and the angel is calling, come out of her, Who's he calling to? Well, in Babylon, at the end of the tribulation, he could be calling to tribulation saints, those followers of Jesus who are still in geographical Babylon, who are still located in the great city. And so the angel is right here saying, Come out! The Lord's saying, Come out of her, my people! My people, and perhaps, perhaps it's a final call of grace to the remaining scattered diaspora of Israel. A last chance. Something else Jake and I were talking about earlier this evening was just the fact that every time God says, I am done, I'm through, it's over, He says, unless... (laughs) If if you listen to me, I mean, it's like He just keeps cracking the door of grace open over and over and over. Because that's the heart of God to save And even here at the very end of the tribulation, the fact that there is a message sent, come out of her, my people. Dudes, I was done at the midpoint. To be honest, there have been times I've been done in my life right here, just done with the world, let the judgment fall, and God still says, come out. If you are my people, come out of her. It's not a new call. We've heard it a lot already in the Revelation. The invitation to come out. Come out of her. Get out. The closer we get to the end, it seems like the louder that call is getting. Do you hear it? Do you hear it in your life? The Lord's saying, come out of Babylon. 
Come out of the world. Separate yourselves from the world system. Separate from sin and participation with sin and approval of sin. Separate yourselves. Come out of her, my people. I think it's a message for us right now. Maybe it's a message for you directly tonight. Maybe you're embroiled in Babylon. And Jesus is saying, come out. And we Christians, you know, when we say, we hear you, Lord, we're going to come out of Babylon. And when we disparage Babylon, and when we say we're tired of the world and its system, and we just want to come out of the world, it's not because we're holier than thou. It's not because we're so clean and perfect. In fact, it's quite the opposite. When, when God says come out and we respond with a desire to come out of Babylon, it's because we're so easily drawn into sin and we know it. I don't need to be surrounded by temptation. It's tough enough. Haven't you found this? It's hard enough to be a Christian surrounded by Christians. <laughs> Much less to be deep in the heart of Babylon. Drawn into the sin of culture or the approval of the sin of culture. You don't have to do it, just approve it. Just be tolerant of it. And we get this constant bombardment when we're surrounded by Babylon. God's saying to you, saying to me tonight, come out. Stop watching those things. Stop listening to that. Stop reading that. Why are you so at home in Babylon? Come out of her, my people. Why do we remain at home in Babylon? Why did such a large population of Jewish people stay in Babylon when they were free to go back to Jerusalem, to Judea, to rebuild, to reclaim the land? Unheard of. You get to go back and they just stay. And we do the same thing. Why do we stay? See, it's not just the city, and yeah, we're talking about a literal city that's going to be destroyed here, but we're also talking about the global world system. It's all that Babylon will represent at the end of the tribulation, and it's already in play in the world today. Are you at home here? Are you comfortable here? Is life here good? 1 Corinthians 15.33, Paul said, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Yeah, I've heard that before. Well, maybe that's the problem. We're just accustomed to hearing things like that. But it's true. You hang around with people who are intent on Babylonian behavior and you will look like a little Babylonian. You'll start doing what they do. Guarantee it. Years ago, Hannah got on the bus to go to school. She came home riding the bus. Put her on the bus again the next morning. She went to school. One week, I kid you not, one week on the bus and suddenly Hannah started asking me to put country music on the radio. (laughs) Country music? I'm like, rock and roll, yeah. No, I mean Christian, Christian. Praise 106. Country music. And you know, you may like country music. That's fine for you, you know. People need what they need, I guess, but... One week on the bus, and the bus driver played country music to and from school, and Hannah was into country music. I'm like, this is just really wrong. Where did I go wrong? Come out, my daughter, come out of her. 
Whatever we're surrounded by, we get into. You're surrounded by people who love to go drinking after work. Guess what you're going to start doing? Same thing. Well, I, yeah, I just want to be friendly. Right, I know. Bad company corrupts good morals. Surrounded by people who like to watch a certain certain genre of movies with stuff in it. You're sitting there going, I shouldn't be watching this, but they're all enjoying it. After a while, won't even think twice. We surround ourselves. Don't be deceived. Paul says, become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. You know what's scary? To be a Christian sitting in a church and to lack the knowledge of God when the knowledge of the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ has been given to you. We have the knowledge of God has been handed over. The glory of God is, is for you and for me. Some people, Paul says, and he's talking to Christians, some of you have lost the knowledge of God, and I say it to your shame. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, he said, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, and note this, remember, sensuality in the flesh, that is the number one characteristic of commercial Babylon, feeding the flesh with all the sensual and extravagant desires. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. The one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. I gave this example years ago when we were in the barn. Go, this because it's springtime, planting time, go out and plant two things in your garden. Have a row of flowers, plant them, get that all set, okay? And then plant a row of steak. No, I'm serious, try it. Raw meat and give it time. See what happens. See, if you're sowing something good, something beautiful like the flowers, they're going to pop up and they're going to be pretty and colorful. And after a while, that meat, you're going to have a bed of maggots. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap from the flesh corruption. That's the deal. Come out of her, my people. That's what the Lord says. Stop doing what they do. Come away from that. Augustine, in his work, City of God, wrote, We must renounce our rights as citizens of this world and flee unto God on the wings of faith. You you know, the Christian, we don't declare American citizenship. I am an American citizen. I love my country. I get misty-eyed every time I hear God bless America. Every time America the Beautiful swells on the radio. Every time the 4th of July comes around and I smell the fireworks. <laughs> I get misty-eyed. I love the country. But I don't declare, I don't claim my American citizenship as the thing that's going to save me. It won't. No, I flee to God. Jesus, referring to the abomination of desolation that will come down mid-tribulation, said in Matthew twenty-four seventeen, whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in the house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. Can you imagine? It's the moment of the rapture and Jesus says, come up here! And you hear four or five people in the fellowship going, hang on a second! Whoa, Lord! Just got to grab my coat. Well, you can grab your coat and just stay in Babylon. Be ready to go. Are you at home in Babylon? Is there anything so important in your house that you just can't stand to leave it? 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John said, 
Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. It's from the world. The world is passing away. And also it's lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So my advice to you, what I have been hearing all week, is be rapture ready. If your car doesn't have a sunroof that opens up wide, get one. (laughs) Keep your laces loose. Be ready to go. Be ready to jump. Be light on your feet. In fact, be so ready to go that when He calls, you're already leaning up. My son Hayden, for years, I don't know why he does it, he walks on tiptoes. I finally figured it out. He's just waiting for the rapture. He's ready to go. It's no coincidence that we in the church are referred to as the church. The ecclesia. The called out. The called assembly. We are being called to assemble before God in Christ Jesus. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. And by the way, if you're saved in Jesus Christ and you participate in sin, guess what? You're still forgiven. You can still receive forgiveness by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But you know what? You may also experience the plagues that come with it. That's a lot of times what Christians don't understand. Well, I've got forgiveness, yeah. And you're going to have consequence too. Commit a sin. Yes, grace can cover. Yes, grace can save. But you're going to deal with the plague that comes along with the sin. Now listen to the description. He says, come out of her. Come out of her, my people, so you'll not participate in her sins. Receive of her plagues, for her sins have piled up as high as heaven. Sounds like the Tower of Babel. And God has remembered her iniquities. Man, I don't even like to remember my own sin. Much less have God remember my iniquities. If I thought that every time I walked in the door of the church, God was remembering all my iniquities and holding them over my head, I would never come to church. If I didn't know the grace of God had removed my sin completely, had transferred it completely onto Jesus. Do you understand how huge that is, by the way? I was hinting, Les and I were talking a moment ago, and I I kind of mentioned this to him, that this whole idea that God takes away my sin is not to say that God winks at my sin. It's okay. No big deal. No. He takes my sin and puts my sin on Jesus who went through a brutal crucifixion to pay the penalty of my sin so that no longer is that on me. It's on Him. It's a transference. Rick's sin... For Jesus' perfection, I'll give you His perfection and I'm going to take your sin. And so He doesn't remember my sin. When I, I think back 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I think of things that I've done. When, and when the devil whispers, and he loves to remind you of those things, right? He loves to bring them up and you bring them up. Maybe you find yourself sometimes saying, Lord, I'm just, I still feel so bad about that. And the Lord's saying, about what? I don't even know what you're talking about. And then we do the foolish thing. We try to remind him. Well, you know, when I was... And with the, 
No, I do not remember. Psalm 25, verse 7. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions, David said. According to your loving kindness, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Don't remember my sin. Just remember me. And God's memory is perfect. With one gracious exception, Isaiah 43.25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Micah 7.19, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Or Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, quoting Jeremiah 31, 34, For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Wow. So get this. While God completely has forgiven and forgotten all the sins of all the people who fall on the grace of Jesus Christ, yet... He will remember to the nth degree every single sin piled all the way up like a great tower of sin to heaven of those who stand against Him. He will not forget a single one. And the smallest thing. It's another thing that that, that people in the world don't understand that even as we study these things, it's almost incomprehensible that there is not a single wrong thing done by someone living outside of Christ that God doesn't know about. And remember, and it piles up. And it's huge. And they will fall. Verse 6, pay her back even as she has paid Give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she herself, that she glorified herself and lived, there's the word again, sensuously, luxuriously, extravagantly. To the same degree, give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen. I am not a widow. And will never see mourning. Such a stunning picture of self-delusion. She's a whore who thinks she's a queen. She is as barren as in, and empty as you can get, but thinks she has plenty of children. She's alone. And yes, she says, but but I, I've got I've got suitors galore. So Babylon and all her lovers are going to go down together. Verse 8, for this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. In one day, so here's the thing, later in the chapter, we've already seen three times it says in one hour the city falls. Here it says, in one day, all of this will overtake her. That is, it all is going to come upon Babylon in one day, and then within an hour, it's done. People are going to wake up one morning just assuming that it's going to be a day like any other. They're going to wake up in self-delusion when absolute destruction comes. Now keep your finger here. Let's go back to Isaiah 47. Isaiah chapter 47. Another prophetic word. Actually, all of Isaiah 47 is read as a lament for Babylon. 
Isaiah writing this 750 years before Christ, 2,000 years later, here we are. So 2,700 years ago, and Isaiah is prophesying a lament for Babylon. And listen to how closely related it is to even what happens in Revelation 18. Pick it up in verse 5. We'll just start there. Isaiah 47, verse 5, Sit silently and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you will no longer be called the queen of kingdoms. I'm a queen, she says. Revelation 18, you will no longer be called the queen of anything. Verse 6, I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage and gave them into your hand and you did not show mercy to them. On the aged, you made your yoke very heavy. Yet you said, I will be a queen forever. These things you did not consider nor remember the outcome of them. Verse 7 indicates to us two Babylons. It indicates Babylon of history past, and now it indicates Babylon yet to fall, because it's telling Babylon of history past, you don't remember what happened. Remember that you lost your rule, you lost your authority, you did fall into ruin. Remember that, because it's going to happen again. Verse 8. Now then, hear this, you sensual one. Okay, sensuality is the issue, gang. Who dwells securely, who says in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. Does that sound familiar? See, we're in Isaiah. That's what God says. I am and there is no one beside me. But Babylon in its sensual arrogance is claiming that position. And then, I will not sit as a widow, nor know loss of children. Verse 9. But these two things will come on you suddenly in one day. That's exactly what John just said. In one day. Loss of children and widowhood. And they will come on you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries. We'll see that later in Revelation 18. In spite of the great power of your spells. You felt secure in your wickedness and said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. For you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one beside me. But evil will come on you, which you do not know how to charm away. And disaster will fall on you, for which you cannot atone. And destruction, about which you do not know, will come on you suddenly. Skip down to verse 14. Behold, they have become like stubble. Fire burns them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There will be no coal to warm by, nor fire to sit before. In other words, the only fire you're going to know is the fire of destruction. Babylon didn't go down by fire historically. And yet, commercial Babylon will be burned up. And that fire will not be warming. Boy, I, I, I left the church today. You can go back to Revelation 18. I left the church and got into my car and it's that time of year when I just love when you get here and it's kind of when I got early in the morning it was kind of cold and it was a little cool upstairs and I was a little chilly and I walked out the door and I felt the sun. I said, Jesus, thank you for warmth. You realize he didn't have to create warmth. I'm so glad he did. And then I got in my car. (laughs) It's awesome. It's my favorite time of year because you open the door, you get in the car, you close the door and you're just hot. Ride home to singing, I'm warm. That's not the kind of warmth we're talking about. The fires and the hearth in the morning when the person wakes up there in Babylon and that day is the last day and it's over. And what is sensual and warming and comforting will actually become Babylon's destruction. Now, 
verses 9 through 19, we studied on Sunday morning. We went through those and talked about those and, and took a close look at what I called Saks Fifth Avenue, right? Because Babylon will be sacked. Thank you, Deb, for laughing at that. I really appreciate it. Verses 9 through 19 consist of three dirges for fallen Babylon. Three dirges. I just want to point these out to you. Verses 9 and 10 are the dirge of the kings of the earth. So they're singing their woes, their laments over fallen Babylon. Then verse 11 through 17, which continues on and includes that trip through the Babylonian mall or Babylon.com or whatever you want to call it. All the different stores within the jewelry and fine clothing and furnishings and precious scents and, and foods and transportation and human trafficking. And you go through all of that. Well, this is the lament of the merchants of the earth. Verses 11 through 17. And then finally, we come to an interesting lament. Verses 17, 18, and 19. It's the lament of the maritime traders of the earth. That is every shipmaster and every passenger and every sailor. And it's interesting to me, and just tuck this away in the back of your mind, speaking of these maritime traders, that the closest sea to literal Babylon is the Persian Gulf, 250 miles to the south. So are these shipmasters and passengers and sailors on the ships in the Persian Gulf watching the destruction of Babylon from 250 miles away? Watching the smoke go up and lamenting the loss? Or are they on boats? Maybe they're on boats in the Euphrates River. But then it doesn't seem like they'd be that large in terms of vessels. But I don't know. Keep that in mind. Now, in a stunning contrast to the lamentations and weeping and sorrow of the kings and merchants and maritime traders, we come down to verse 20, and the voice that has been teaching and speaking to John and indicating these things now gives a command. Note the difference. Verse 20, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Rejoice! Seems a little inappropriate. You know? And I had to teach my daughter. Because Anna Marie, she cracks me up. She laughs at everything, but especially um, physical humor. So if you're walking through the house and you stub your toe and you're like, oh, ow, 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 ow. She's like, (laughs) she cracks her up. I've got to get her the three stooges. She would love that. Seems a little inappropriate. All these people are lamenting the fall of Babylon. Whoa, whoa, Babylon has fallen. It's terrible. This is awful. They're weeping and mourning. And the voice says, rejoice. Hallelujah. Rejoice over her. Oh, heaven. Note this. Saints and apostles and prophets. The church. Raptured and glorified in heaven. Along with the apostles, prophets are now invited to rejoice over the fall of Babylon. Revelation 19, the first six verses are that rejoicing. Four hallelujahs in a row. Just praise and hallelujah. And it's some of the strangest hallelujah in the Bible because it's hallelujah over her smoke rising up forever and ever. Hallelujah over her destruction. And again, I try to figure this out. What's going on here? This rejoicing is not taking pleasure in pain. It's not gloating over the sorrow 
of smoldering Babylon. You know, it's not... (laughs) They stub their toes. It's not it. This is a completely different rejoicing. It is rejoice in righteous retribution. It's praise. Get this. It's praise for vindication. If you've ever been put down for loving Jesus, if you've ever wanted to say something but knew if you spoke you would be shunned and shamed if you ever felt out of place if you ever wish just for once people would be happy about who Jesus is if you ever wish that God would just stand up and go okay here's the truth what they were telling you out of my word is true this is that day vindication and the Lord he puts it this way Deuteronomy 32 verse 35 vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip. The day of their calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon them. For the Lord will vindicate His people and will have compassion on His servants. When He sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. Vengeance is mine. I'm going to take care of this. Every injustice every do- ever done, I remember... I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to give full payment for that. That should be a little terrifying because every injustice that I did needs to be paid for. And it was on the cross. Again, that transference is absolutely stunning because what I did unjustly and unjustly and and hatefully and, and meanly and sinfully to other people, even that paid for by Jesus But everything, every injustice, God will deal with it. And what the praise here, the rejoicing, is because, note this, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. The worship, the praise, the rejoicing is in the righteousness of God. It's in God's follow-through. It's in the ultimate truth being seen and known at the hand of God as He does everything that He said He would do. And God's vengeance is perfect. That's why I'm glad it's not rejoice over her for all the vengeance that you give her. I, I I would have done it already and it would have been bad and wrong and (laughs) ill-timed. But God, in His retribution, in His vengeance, is perfectly patient He's patiently perfect. He waits until the exact moment when there's no hope beyond it. And then when He does it, it's completely right. Romans chapter 12, verse 19, therefore, this is what we do. Paul says, never, never take your own revenge. Beloved, leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Deuteronomy 32 says the Lord. And then Paul says, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, I kind of like that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'll do something nice for him, make him feel guilty. What up? That's not the point. And, And that's a misunderstanding there. Paul is quoting a proverb. When Paul says, uh, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. In so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. That's Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. So Paul's just quoting a Solomonic proverb, but he's not doing so. It's not a proverb that's about how to burn your enemies and fry your foes. 
It's a proverb that can imply either punishment, if it's deserved, or kindness. Kindness, because heaping burning coals, well, there was an ancient Egyptian punishment of heaping burning coals. F.F. Bruce tells us about that. That Yeah, there, there was a punishment in Egypt where if, if you were being given this sentence, you had to walk around with a, a bowl of hot coals on your head. Balance that, you know. But in Asian style, long before we could flip a switch and have the fireplace come on, they would borrow coals from each other, borrow fire. Hey, my coals have burned out. You go to your neighbor, you have a pan, and you get coals from your friend if you're running low. And you would, again, in Asian style, you would just carry that pan on your head, burning coals. And if your neighbor was extra kind, they would heap burning coals (laughs) on your head. Which was a way of saying, let me give you more so you don't run out. So you can be warmed, and you can have light. And so it's an act of kindness. Either way... We are called, you and I now, we are not called to vengeance, nor to be excited and happy about vengeance. That's not our deal. We are called to return the warmth of kindness, even in response to the fire of antipathy. Even in meanness and hatefulness, we are called, our job, kindness. Return kindness. Return kindness. And then the Hebrew pastor, he gets involved and he quoted the same proverb, He quoted, the vengeance is mine, I will repay. And then he said in Hebrews 10.31, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So again, the bottom line in this rejoicing, in this praise, is it is praise of vindication. It is praise of righteousness. It is rejoicing in the Lord for doing and being truth. Just as he said he would. God's going to make all things right. That helps my song in a foreign land, by the way. When I know God's going to make it right and I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to stress about it. I don't have to stay up late trying to make it right. God's going to do that so I can sing a song in the foreign land. Jeremiah 51, verse 56. You don't have to turn back there. I'll just read it to you. For the destroyer is coming against her, against Babylon, and her mighty men will be captured, and their bows are shattered. For the Lord is a God of recompense. Listen, He will fully repay. It's not going to miss anything. You know what that does? It leaves you and me free to just live with the Gospel. In love, in compassion, in grace, in forgiveness. That's our job. That's how we are to live so that we can sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. But in Babylon, all the singing is about to stop. Verse 21, Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists. Musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard among you, so the entertainment business is shut down. And no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer, so the arts are done. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer, so industry shut down. The light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer, so the electric grid goes down. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride, and this is not a euphemism for the church, this is just talking about common joys of life, marriages, weddings. That's not going to be heard in you any longer, so daily joys over. 
for your merchants were the great men of the earth because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. Sorcery is pharmakia in the Greek. Sound familiar? Pharmakia. Where we get our word pharmacy. Sorcery. Your sorcery. The word pharmakia means either magic or witchcraft or administering drugs. Because the two were, were symbiotic. I mean, they worked together. In Greek culture, witchcraft and drug use kind of went hand in hand. Part of the mind-altering state of, of, of witchcraft and magic. And so that word describes both. By the way, did you hear the, the latest on the national drug debate? So in the ballot, on the ballot yesterday in Colorado, and I'd originally heard that it didn't pass, but it did pass. The attempt to decriminalize possession, use, or cultivation of magic mushrooms has passed. Now, if you happen to be 21 or older and you are using, in possession of, or cultivating the hallucinogenic magic mushrooms, which contain psilocybin, which is the hallucinogen in them, if you happen to have that, punishments, it's okay. It's all right. It passed. So now Colorado is the first state to say, yeah, you can have magic mushrooms, you're not going to get busted for it, no big deal. Colorado was among the first states. Our own glorious state was one of them to say, hey, yeah, you know, pot, no big deal. Cannabis, open up the stores. Let's not make that. It shouldn't be illegal, you know. So now they're everywhere. Well, this is what's going to follow. So you're already now watching the front end of this drug use of all kinds. Pharmacia. Sign of the times, folks. Pharmacia. A similar effort failed last year in California. It will be on the next ballot. I guarantee it. The next time around, and it's going to be on the ballot in Oregon next year. Watch for it in your local uh, communities. Magic mushrooms. Because there are properties in psilocybin that, that, while it's hallucinogenic, can also help with depression. Well, yeah, if you're stoned. (laughs) Who figures this stuff out? Get a buzz, I feel better. Yeah, and you're completely deluded. Pharmacia. You know what? Add to that the fact that witchcraft and the Wiccan religion is one of the fastest growing religious systems in America. And I begin to pause as we read about Babylon. And I begin to wonder. As we read through chapter 18, what we talked about Sunday, what we've already seen tonight, I look at these things and I, man, I wonder, where is Babylon? Where is it really? On the surface, note this, it's all cargoes of gold, verse 12, and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen, purple and silk and scarlet, and every kind of citron wood and every kind of ivory and article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble. We're talking luxuries of all kinds, cinnamon and spice and everything nice, incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour, wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots, and it's marvelous and it's it's luxuries and it's extravagance and it all rests on Deception. It all rests on delusion. But it's, it's luxury. It's the luxury life. Yeah. It's lifestyles of the rich and famous. Those of you here remember Robin Leach. But then you look under the veneer. You go into the dark web 
of verse 13, and it ends with slaves and human lives, human trafficking, and then we start to realize what's going on under the surface of this deception. And I want you to see something here at the end of this in verse 23, because we see the veneer of music and the arts. Makes you feel good. Veneers of of industry makes us feel powerful. Power and parties and prosperity, all of this, it's just that. It's fake. It's not real. This is not eternal life. And you see there in verse 23, your merchants were the great men of the earth because, because, because. Not because of the wonderful things they does. Because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery, by your sleight of hand, by your magic, by your drugs. All the nations were deceived. Listen, we've talked about the Bilderberg group, the uber rich, the the 1%, if you will. And I don't even really like that terminology. And yet, there are those in the world, the globalists, who, at least they think they're running things. Bilderberg Group meets every year. You would not believe the names of dignitaries and U.S. politicians that have met there. Some of whom you would believe. Others you'd be like, he was there? And they meet to discuss what's going on in the world and to impose what they think is direction for humanity. They hate Donald Trump. He is a burr in the globalist saddle. At a time... When the previous administration, and and, and no judgment here, seriously, I'm just calling it for what it was. In the Obama administration, Obama was a globalist. He pushed for globalism. He did. There's no denying that. So then along comes Donald Trump saying, nationalism, nationalism, and the globalists hate him. But balance this out. Donald Trump ran on making America great again. Right? MAGA. The red hats. People get beat up for wearing. Check this out. 3.2% GDP growth in the first quarter of 2019. That's huge. Our economy is sizzling right now. It's growing so well. It's doing so well. Quarterly GDP growth has already surpassed 3%, which is really good. It's already surpassed 3% four quarters out of the first two years of the Trump presidency. By comparison... It only did that four times total in eight years under Obama. But it's already done it four times in the first two years. Where we've crossed that 3% gross domestic product growth. And by the way, under the Obama administration, it never surpassed 3% after 2015. Never got back, just couldn't get up there. Suddenly, Trump with his nationalistic policies, and all of a sudden, man, America financially is doing very well. We are now at 3.6% unemployment, which is stunning. There are some who said we would never get back down there. The, The economy is smoking hot. The stock market continues to set records. That's good, right? We're making America great again. TIA.com. You might want to check this out. It's Truth in Accounting. It's a 501c3, not-for-profit. And what it does, TIA.com, is reports on the financial conditions of our country as they are. April 2019 reported the following. With assets 
of $3.84 trillion, that's what we have in assets as a country, the federal government's unfunded obligations and debt total $108.94 trillion. We have assets of three, but we have debt of $108 trillion, which contributed to a $105 trillion debt burden, including unfunded Social Security and Medicare promises. And it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican, our government is spending like crazy and has through multiple administrations. So I don't lay that blame on any one person. I lay it on the entire government. You know what that equates to for you tonight? Just, just to let you know, a little bit of good news for you. I told you I'd try to bring you down. Here's, here's one way I think I can do this. Your burden as a federal taxpayer, your part of the debt of our country, $696,000. If our country had to pay up right now and we just said, okay, you just go to the citizens, everybody's got to pay their part, you would owe right now $696,000. But wait a minute. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and all the rest. The economy's booming. Are these the things that make for a great nation? Even in our nation right now, it's veneer. It's veneer. It's not what's real. It's not what lasts. Look at verse 24. Let me wrap this up for you. In her, in Babylon, was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain in the earth. Now, literally this speaks in part of those who are martyred in the tribulation. speaks of those who are unjustly murdered across history. It speaks of followers of God, both Christian and Jewish, who have been wiped out for their faith. And all of that blood will be on the hands of Babylon and on those aligned with Babylon. Blood on their hands. That's an incredible debt burden. But here's the point. The underbelly of Babylon is bloody. It's bloody. When you get down to the bottom floor of the department store of verses 12 and 13, you arrive at human trafficking. It is ugly down there. And you get to the end of the chapter and you find out that Babylon is bloody and this is an indictment of all the bloody murderous work behind all the merchandising of Babylon in all of history, but it should tell us something else. The world system kills. The world system, the global economy, the wealth, the amassing of riches, ultimately it just kills and it will kill until it's judged. Now, people ask, they want to know, where's America in all of this? Where is America in the end times? Because I look for it in the Bible, I want to find it. You know, I see Israel mentioned, and I see Babylon mentioned, and I see other countries, Egypt's mentioned, and Assyria, and Edom, Moab, Ammon, they're all mentioned. Where's America? Some say, well, it's gutted, you know, after the rapture of the church, because we still have a large population of Christians. It's gutted. Possibly. Others say it's, by that time, fallen behind China in global power or perhaps a rising Russia. But the question that is interesting and intriguing to me is, is it possible that our country could house the capital of Antichrist? 
And there's a whole additional study that we could get into where I could show you why there are some commentators who think that commercial Babylon truly is New York City. And I pointed you out one thing before. Shipmasters watching it burn from a distance, but 250 miles seems unlikely. Sitting there in New York Harbor watching New York City burn as the financial capital of Antichrist could be likely. Wait, 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 Rick, what are you saying? You're saying it's New York? Listen, others argue that it's Rome. have got an entire commentary by a brilliant man, and he makes an argument that it's Rome, and then the rest of the chapter refers to Rome every time that it says Babylon, and I'm reading this going, nah, religious Babylon I can see being centered in Rome because of its description biblically, but commercial, I don't see that. And others argue, <laughs> I like this one, it's Jerusalem. Babylon's Jerusalem. That's that's where the issue is. That's where the all the stuff is going to come down. I, no, no. New York City, Rome, Jerusalem. I still personally, if you ask my opinion, I lean toward Al Hilla in Iraq. I lean toward Babylon, the original center. And like I said, if you look right now at the suburban sprawling region of Al Hilla, it's already very well grown. Four hundred fifty-five thousand people, and it's growing. And they want to rebuild Babylon, and it's all kind of being put together. I think that's where it'll be. I could be wrong, though. Here's the thing I want to leave you with tonight. It is, it is not the location that kills. It is the world system that kills. Ultimately, it's not the location that matters. We won't even be here to see it. So if you think it's in Babylon like I do, or you think it's going to be New York City, that, that's fine. Make your arguments. State your case. It doesn't matter who's right or wrong on this one. What matters is when we look at Babylon as a world system, as a global mercantile, as a finance-based, money-based system, it is a killer, folks. And I'll end in James chapter 5, because James says, and just listen to this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you, and will consume your flesh like fire. And then James says, it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. This is the last day's prophecy, folks. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your field and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth or the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous. He does not Resist you. And if that doesn't describe in all honesty the veneer of the American dream, I'm not sure what does. Does that bum you out? Listen. Verse 7 says, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it. Until it gets the early and late rains, you too be patient. Then he says this, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. How do I strengthen my heart? Sing a song. Sing a song in a foreign land. We have a song to sing. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of our salvation, it's not a sensual song, it's not a sexual song, it's not an empty-headed pop song. I hate pop music these days. It's just so... It's not even a song of national pride that gets us through the Babylon years of this world. It is a song of salvation. Again, Exodus 15.2, The Lord is my strength and my song. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will extol Him. Don't give in to Babylon. Come out of her, the Lord says, come out of her, my people. Father, show us the way out. It's funny, Lord, I say that, and I know what the way out is. I know who the way out is. It's Jesus. Father, show us Jesus. Father, show us life in the Son. Father, rip away the veneer and all the falsehoods and the deception, the things that are not true, the lie of of material wealth and, and joy that comes just by the best job or the best money or the best retirement. Father, it's all just such a lie. Remove the veil of unbelief. And give us eyes, Lord, to see Jesus. As we sing songs in the night, as we sing songs in a foreign land, give us eyes that are fixed on Jesus, author and finisher of our faith. And Lord, come and call us out of Babylon. For really what I hear when you say, come out of her, my people, I hear you saying, come up here. And the ultimate calling out when we get to go and just be with you. No riches on earth could possibly compare. No pleasures. No fleshly desires. No sensual things compare to your love, Lord God, in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so I just pray tonight, Father, by way of application, would you call us out in our personal lives, call out the things we're clinging to, call out the things we hold to that are not of you. Call us to sacrifice, to true joyful living, naming Jesus as Lord and Savior. Call us out, Father from the things of this world. Even as I pray, Father, and I do this from time to time, I think of our several of our teenagers who are sitting toward the back and my right. And, and again, Lord, I'm so thankful they're here. They don't have to be here on a Wednesday night listening to me drone on and on, but they're here. Call them out, Father. You give them a vision in their young lives for a future with Jesus. You let them see what Many of us didn't see until we were further in. Give them a passion to follow after Christ in an age where so many of their contemporaries or their friends are not. And Father, may we all together, youngest to oldest, be a people who follow hard after Jesus. Loving you passionately because, well, you loved us first. Call us out, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm not going to invite you to come tonight.
I want to invite you to sit right there in your chair. And as Rachel leaves us in this final song of worship, I invite you to go to Jesus. You know, a lot of times we go to people because we think we got to go to the pastor. Got to go talk to Pastor Les. Got to go pray with Pastor Rick. No, you don't. You got to go to Jesus. And we don't want to get in the way of that. We want to help you get there. And, and we need I need your help getting there. So let's go to Jesus tonight. Right where you are. I want to invite you to take a few moments. You can worship, sing the song. You can bow your head. You can just pray. But wherever you are in your life right now, would you just take your heart before the Lord, spend a few minutes, talk to Him. Go to Jesus.